Hi everybody, I'm Catherine. Welcome back to our first episode of In the Shadows, an immigration policy podcast where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows. In this episode, we will talk generally about what domestic violence is, the challenges that survivors face, in particular, the vulnerability of immigrant domestic violence survivors. Um, And then we'll also discuss the warning signs of domestic violence and then some resources that are available to those who survive or are survivors of domestic violence. We are very excited to have our first guest. We have Danny Beintroth from Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence with us here today. So welcome, Danny. Thank you for being here. Hello, everyone, and thanks for having me. So just to start off, we want to get to know you a little bit. So give us a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today, the whole nine. Sure, yeah. So um, I am originally from Pennsylvania, so I am still in the state of my birth and upbringing. Um, I'm originally from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So for folks who are familiar with NEPA or Northeastern PA, uh, that's where I call home and my parents still live there. Um, so, uh, but I went to undergrad in Pittsburgh. I went to Chatham University. Uh, and at the time it was in all women's college. Um, and I have an undergrad degree in global policy studies with a minor in religious history, uh, which you can imagine opened me up to a wealth of career opportunities. Um, but I ended up going to law school. Um, and I went to New England School of Law, um, which is located in downtown Boston. Um, so I lived in Boston for about three years. Um, and I held a bunch of different sort of um, jobs in the legal world uh, when I was in law school. Um, but obviously, the job that really made the most impact on me was the first real, you know, legal experience I got, which was through a law school clinic, um, which is great because we at PCNEV uh, get to host clinic students and be a clinical experience. Um, And I worked specifically out of a law office that was out of New England's School of Law. And um, I represented survivors of domestic violence. Um, So a little bit about myself personally, I am a survivor of crime and I have a a little bit of experience of the system sort of on that end Um, and sort of working with survivors um, was a really, uh, first of all, I loved it. It was a really uh, wonderful way to sort of get to know my clients and be able to do things that actually benefited them and their children's lives and uh, to be their advocate, especially in a time of crisis. Um, and like coming from that, you know, background with my own personal experience, um, I saw really a need for, you know, services that 
responded to folks going through the crisis of being victimized, uh, you know, um, in these difficult situations, you know, uh, domestic violence was particularly, um, you know, just the cases were really difficult to deal with and really, um, you know, the survivors that we worked with really needed a lot of assistance. Um, and I had a case that I, I really, I was one of the very few clinic students that had one, one to two cases. Most folks had, you know, around three to four, four or five, um, because one of my clients was just required so much, um, you know, intensive sort of trauma-informed care and assistance and guidance. And um, really, I just fell in love with the work after that. You know, I just really, um, really enjoyed being able to, to do that advocacy work and work on behalf of survivors and to assist them in, you know, their most difficult times and to be sort of that source of support. Um, and I got a lot of other experience in law school. I did work at private organizations. I did work for the DA's office in Suffolk County for a bit in Boston. And I worked for a tax board. Um, and I just kept finding myself coming back to, uh, particularly family law because that was often this need that the survivors that we worked with had and really work within the domestic violence movement. Um, and I, Ended up working one summer at Greater Boston Legal Services, which is the city of Boston's uh, premier legal services agency. And I got to work um, really intensely in a group that was uh, the domestic violence sort of divorce work group. Um, and we particularly did divorces for survivors of domestic violence. Um, and I got really, really firsthand experience in doing those cases and navigating those issues and dealing with all types of survivors. And we had really diverse clientele. Um, I did represent a lot of immigrant survivors uh, that had unique uh, perspectives and issues. Um, and uh, really also a lot of different types of abusers as well, too. Um, and that was, I think, really like the very foundation for the work that I ended up doing after I got out of law school. Um, and that was, uh, uh, so PCDV has, which I'll probably talk about a little bit later, is a program called the Civil Legal Representation Project, which is full service law offices uh, that work out of our member domestic violence program, um, and I ended up getting a job with one of the CLRs uh, that recently received funding from Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, who I now work for, and that CLR was located in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, um, a mere few blocks away from my parents' house. So I ended up graduating law school, taking the bar, passing the bar exam, and working for about three years in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, representing survivors in Luzerne, Carbon, and Wyoming counties in everything from immigration to family law cases, PFAs, public assistance. Um, and again, that was that's really the, the foundation of my legal work that's really brought me to sort of where I am now at PCADB, which is, you know, the state... Uh, statewide coalition against domestic violence. So that is a long-winded, but I think succinct summary of sort of how I got here and 
and, and why I'm working in the domestic violence movement and field. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I think um, it's interesting that you mention how much like your clinic experience kind of shaped where you wanted to go in law because I felt that same way last summer interning at PCADV. Um, and then also Maria and I, the reason we're doing this podcast is because we're part of a federal litigation and appeals clinic that deals with immigrant survivors. And so those two areas have really formed like the type of work that I personally want to do as an attorney. But um, so you work for Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Can you just talk about the organization a little bit and what specifically the legal team does? Yeah, sure. So uh, PCDV uh, obviously stands for the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We, uh, as most people do not know this, are the first domestic violence coalition in the nation. We were established in 1976, which is actually the same year uh, the Protection from Abuse Act was enacted in the state of Pennsylvania. So you can kind of see um, sort of the grassroots underpinning and sort of the legislative, um, you know, landscape uh, that was at play when PCADV came to existence. Um, you know, we often talk about the founding mothers, which are the original advocates um, that established coalitions and really established those networks of services and systems of support for survivors that, you know, is what PCADV is based in now. Uh, so now PCADV is, um, we're located in Harrisburg. That's our main office. Um, I live in Harrisburg. Um, I live five minutes away from the office. <laughs> um, but we have staff um, from all across the country. Um, we are around 40 professionals um, that work in various different areas and fields of the domestic violence movement. So we have folks that do uh, training and technical assistance, which is sort of like responding and answering inquiries from survivors and domestic violence programs to folks that work on housing, folks that work in prevention, and all those types of areas um, and policy as well, too, uh, that are, you know, make up the coalition. But the coalition really is a coalition uh, because of our member programs. PCADV gets to call itself a coalition because we're made up of 59 member programs that serve all 67 counties in the state of PA. So no matter where you're located, no matter what county you're in, you're going to have a local domestic violence program, which is what our member programs are, that offers those wraparound holistic services that you think of member programs offering. So oftentimes emergency shelter is part of that, legal advocacy, support groups, counseling, your 24-7 hotline, um, you know, Alone in the city of Pennsylvania, there are four specific domestic violence member programs that we have, Women Against Abuse, Congreso de Latinos Unidos, Women in Transition, and Lutheran Settlement House. Um, so uh, we at the coalition, as those professionals, really help and support those member programs in those daily services that they provide to survivors day in and day out. We provide them with training. We answer their questions. We help guide them through, um, you know, issues that they're encountering and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, the specific legal team is a team that's made up of 
five of us, five or six of us, I believe. Um, we are all, you know, legal professionals uh, that really uh, work on uh, implementing PCDB specific legal programs like um, the Civil Legal Representation Project that I just mentioned, um, like our PA Safe Law Project, which is a Victims of Crime Act funded uh, full uh, civil legal service helpline and um, additional programming along with that. Um, and we sort of um, also really monitor, you know, the ongoing issues that our member programs may have, you know, with their specific court systems and processes. And we really also, you know, provide training and technical assistance to those member programs on those issues and also systems. Uh, professionals on those issues. So we're often training folks like um, court staff or probation or parole or law enforcement or judges or, you know, those regular folks that interact, um, you know, with survivors throughout the course of their work, you know, um, where they are to sort of address issues that are going on as best as we possibly can. Um, and really sort of provide them the tools and training and resources that they need to best respond to the needs of survivors. So that's like a broad overview of sort of what we do in the legal team. Um, and I could obviously talk about, you know, specific projects as much as you want to know about that. But that's, you know, like a general overview of sort of like PCDB and what we do in the legal services team in general. That's amazing. I'm glad that there are such extensive resources available um, and I think it's really important that there are. So you, in talking about all those resources that PCADV provides for the Pennsylvania area, right, this episode really we want to talk about domestic violence, the challenges the survivors face, um, resources, and just the vulnerability of immigrant survivors of domestic violence. And so I guess my first question for you is if you could explain a little bit about domestic violence, what it entails, what it looks like, signs that you know people could look out for. Yeah, absolutely. So um, typically, we have a pretty standard operating working definition, which is uh, domestic violence is a pattern of coercive control, where one person in a intimate or family relationship uses power and control to maintain dominance over the other. Um, and that's a really broad sort of definition, but we think that that definition really encompasses the plethora of behaviors and um, acts that encompass domestic violence. And, and typically when I say in trainings is if I want anybody to take away, <clears throat> excuse me, anything from that definition, it is coercive control and power and control because that's really the hallmark of domestic violence is using uh force of control to maintain power and control and maintain dominance and power and oppression in a relationship, uh, whether that be a family relationship. So, you know, husband, wife, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, or whether that be a current or former intimate or sexual partner. Um, and that is really, you know, obviously what we always look for folks, uh, what we say in terms of folks looking out for the signs of domestic violence is looking for that sort of coercive controlling behavior. So what does that look like outside of, you know, the typical signs of domestic violence, which, you know, oftentimes people think is what is needed 
to define domestic violence, which is, you know, physical injury. Um, so we're looking at things like isolation, you know, um, you know, sort of controlling and maintenance of daily tasks and, um, you know, a survivor's ability to live autonomously and sort of free from those restrictions. You know, oftentimes we, you know, ask folks to sort of say, like, has the person been reaching out less? Is it difficult to get in contact with them? Do you have to talk to the other person before you are able to talk to them? You know, um, are you ever able to have an alone conversation with them? Anything like that, you know? We look for those sort of things, you know, even start in, you know, you know, observing sort of, you know, is there possessiveness? Is there jealousy? Is there controlling behaviors going on in what you can observe? Um, but oftentimes what it looks like to most people is that you have survivors that are just withdrawing and isolating themselves. Uh, you know, that may be, you know, because the abuser is controlling their, you know, movement and their behaviors or because they feel that this is the way to minimize further abuse is to, you know, maintain that isolation and maintain that, um, you know, sort of uh, withheld uh, view from their family and friends. So we often say to sort of look at those things, uh, look at those non-physical signs of behavior, you know, try and, if you have a friend, you know, try and get them sort of alone so you know if they if you can to ask them questions and you know in a non-judgmental understanding and compassionate way um you know those are some things to sort of look for but you know um there's a lot of other aspects to domestic violence too as well you know there's financial abuse we know that that occurs in almost 96 percent of domestic violence cases you know, do, are they on an allowance? Are they told that they can work or they can't work? You know, do they have access to their finances? You know, um, that's a form, you know, that's a form of domestic violence we see so frequently. Um, we have survivors that are struggling with substance use or mental health issues. Abusers will often exploit those or, you know, encourage survivors to use because they know that when they're under the influence or when they're using, they're easier to control and maintain power over them. You know, um, some things that we often look for um, in terms of domestic violence perpetrators are, you know, um, public persona is everything to domestic violence perpetrators. So they are very concerned about how they appear to public, to the public, how the outside views their relationships and the way that they behave in their relationships. Uh, but some things too is they are very self-centered, have a very self-centered worldview. Me, 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 I, 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 there's very lack of regard for the survivor and or those who are affected by their actions or the abuse. They often have very rigid attitudes and beliefs um, you know, this, this is most often seen around gender roles, um, you know, that they often have very uh, rigid attitudes and beliefs on sort of what, uh, you know, specific gender roles and where they fit in a relationship. So, you know, that the man is the, the head of the household and that women are subservient to him, 
to him and you know those types of gender roles play out in sort of the way that they you know enact their abuse and sort of the um you know unrealistic standards that they hold their victims and survivors to um and really the bottom line is is that you know that they lack empathy for the survivors and those in their lives and and that is often apparent in, you know, the inability to sort of think of, of how those actions are affecting the family, how those actions are affecting the survivor, the children of the relationship, if there are any, and those around them. Um, but it is often difficult to spot because abusers are extremely manipulative. They are extremely controlling. Uh, we often say control freaks, and that's typically how it is. Uh, so, you know, when so there is survivors do know that there is a price for sort of speaking out or there are consequences for speaking out because of a lot of that power and control and a lot of the rules that abusers set up that are, you know, rigid and almost meant to be broken, um, you know, so that abusers, you know, unfortunately feel that they have a justification to engage in the acts that they're engaging. But you know, again, we we often talk about the power and control wheel, which, you know, is a bit outdated in terms of sort of you, you, the gender binary and in sort of, you know, the way that we look at domestic violence uh, currently. But for that wheel, there are a ton of other wheels out there that exist for all different types of abuse. Uh, there's wheels for financial abuse, uh, wheels specifically for immigrant survivors. Um, and again, there are wheels too for different populations because we know that domestic violence is, uh, abusers are really attuned to those types of things and often, you know, utilize, you know, what is you know, specific barriers that specific populations face um, to make their abuse more effective and make that control more effective. Yeah, I think that's really interesting um, to kind of think about how much goes into domestic abuse and like what that looks like, because it can really present in so many different ways. But I think as a society, we have a very like rigid view of what that is it's like a man has power over a woman and he's physically mm -hmm. abusing her and I think when we talk about domestic violence people who don't work in that area oftentimes will think well why doesn't the woman just or the person just leave or how did they get into that relationship to begin with and I'm wondering if you could kind of speak on that like what happens what can happen at a beginning of a relationship by the time like a person realizes that they're in an abusive situation, it's almost already too late. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I think that's what is the scariest thing for most folks is the reality that that is a big component of domestic violence is that love bombing is real, that, Abusers are very skilled at manipulation. They are very skilled at knowing exactly what to say and what to do to sort of earn a survivor's trust. Um, and that's why I feel like a lot of times, uh, I think what's so common with survivors is the shame that they feel 
around like, again, how did I get myself into this? How did I not know? You know, and I often say this on trainings as well is like, I am a white woman with an education and a, you know, and a relatively stable income, you know, and I could easily be one of those people that trusts the wrong person, that becomes manipulated, that falls into the situation that so many of the survivors with that I worked with. Um, you know, again, I, our programs that we worked with as CLR were geared to specific incomes, but we know that domestic violence affects survivors of all incomes. Um, you know, we just typically tend to see those with less income uh, being overrepresented because they are the ones that need to reach out to resources more frequently. Um, whereas folks with resources are able to pay for a hotel room or pay for an attorney um, to, you know, handle the situation with as little as folks, with little as folks knowing as they would like to know. Um, but, you know, um, what I often stress is, it's, you know, domestic violence really knows no race, no gender, no sort of educational qualifiers, because it is so hallmarked in the fact that abusers are often, you know, a sheep and wolf, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that they are able to really say exactly what they need to say to earn that trust so that by the time survivors often realize that they are with someone that is harmful, that they are with someone that is abusive, they're, they're deep into a relationship. They may have children with them. They may be living with them. Um, and I feel a lot of shame comes from sort of that feeling that I'm somewhat responsible for this or I could quickly end this. And it, it's just not that easy, especially uh, when we're talking about folks that, you know, well, why don't you just leave? Um, that's a such very difficult com conversation and complicated conversation for so many survivors. You know, um, we just talked a bit about financial abuse. So oftentimes finances are just the least of it that's sort of wrapped up in that relationship. It makes, you know, a barrier to leaving. Um, housing is a huge one. Survivors are often dependent upon their abusers for housing. They may live with their abusers, and that becomes an issue. And that also requires finances and money to be able to relocate and move. Custody of children, you know, is another one, um, you know, that we I've worked with a lot of survivors who still want their abusers to have contact with their children because that's their children's other parent. Um, and you can't honestly blame them, you know? Um, so there's a lot of, lot of factors at play for survivors. And, you know, we often so much say that it's a case by case basis, but it really truly is because it really truly depends on, you know, their experience, their connections, um, you know, their support systems, the services available and the resources available to them as to how difficult and what barriers are at play in sort of telling them just leave or why didn't you not get into that relationship in the first place. I think that's so sad and so difficult because you, there's so many ways that you want to help and you think that by yeah. saying why don't you just leave it's you're helping right but it might be hurting more than it's helping and I think that's 
the tough part of recognizing the different approaches that you need to have to it. Um, so to add an additional layer, do you see and have you experienced working with um, immigrants, right, who have experienced domestic violence and what additional challenges they might face? Because I see frequently how, you know, if it's a United States citizen who is abusing an immigrant, they weaponize the fact that they're immigrants and then they hold it against them and say, you can't do this or that. And then if you do, I'll go to ICE. And then yeah. that just sets in motion something else. Yeah, no. So you, I, I think you, you, you just summed it up really, really perfectly. Is uh, That's a huge barrier. Is um, oftentimes uh, the route to immigration status in the United States um, for individuals is through their spouse. So it is through either a spouse who is a lawful permanent resident or a spouse who is the U.S. citizen. So you can imagine, um, obviously, you know, what an abusive spouse or former spouse will do with, uh, you know, having such power over someone like that. Um, you know, again, is threats to report them to ICE, um, threats to interfere or contact other immigration authorities, you know, with their status that's tied to um, that abusive person. Um, underreporting is so huge in the immigrant community because of, I think, really the fear, the fear and the consequence um, to their immigration status, the fear that they may be deported, which is a realistic fear, um, the fear that they may be taken away from their children or have them show their children taken away from them. Um, this is just so common that we often see, you know, abusers utilize immigration status um, as a tool to exert that power and control over survivors. And the fact that they know that the fear of consequences or the fear of reaching out to those resources and support um, that survivors have. They know that they could almost do this with impunity because they know that survivors are, you know, most likely not going to report. Um, and that's really, really difficult. Um, it's really, really hard. Um, you know, and, and one of the other things too that we often see is, you know, not just weaponizing sort of the fact that they don't have status, but taking their documents um, is a big thing that we would often see. They do have a lawful, a green card. If they do have any sort of ID or documents, they will take them. Um, you know, again, too, these cases are really, really scary when it comes to child custody because. If you do have both parties that are not from the United States, there'll be threat or fear of taking those children out of the country, which is difficult, almost impossible to sort of enforce if they really, you know, you know, do take those children out of the country. So, and again, like I said, in, in child custody, that, that's often a thing, you know, uh, abusers will sling whatever mud they can at survivors to say that they are an unfit parent and, Oftentimes, because of sort of their rigid and rigid beliefs about things, they will bring up immigration status as, you know, a reason why they should not have custody to their children. You know, their risk of, you know, being away from those children and being deported, especially if those children are U.S. citizens themselves. So there, there's just a lot, a lot of ways that, unfortunately, abusers could sort of utilize, um, you know, 
sort of the challenges and the gaps in our immigration system to, to further exert that power and control over immigrant survivors, unfortunately. And oftentimes this will look like to, you know, like I won't give documents over to the immigration authorities. I'll, you know, provide false testimony to the immigration authorities or false information. Um, you know, it really runs the gamut, unfortunately, of sort of, you know, wherever they could do the most damage, um, they, they will often focus their efforts there. Yeah, that's so terrifying. Um, and just considering all of that, it's amazing that any immigrant survivors of domestic violence come forward, which I think is what I personally think is so rewarding um, about the work that PCA DV does, because it provides like an opportunity for these people who are already dealing with so much that have really taken a big risk to come forward and talk about what's happening to them and it just gives them the support they need I think that's vitally important the next thing I kind of want to talk about um, I think it's a good segue um, is just in the United States there's so much politicizing of immigration it's a huge issue for you know, the presidential election coming up, we see, we're seeing tons of new stuff coming out every day. How do you think that plays a role in um, the type of services that are offered for immigrants, but also for immigrants like seeking help? Yeah, so I... (laughs) As with most things, I think uh, the over-politicization of the immigration system harms survivors, um, unfortunately. Um, And so typically we see um, immigration um, coming here without status or coming here without inspection as bad qualities or bad character defects. Uh, That's sort of the way the politicization has set up, um, you know, in terms of this sort of narrative of removing children from parents who are crossing the border illegally really sets up that sort of presumption that they are bad parents for trying to cross the border illegally, when oftentimes they are extremely good parents, you know, seeking the safest possible outcome for them and their children by trying to come to a safer place. Um, but that is, you know, we see that unfortunately. Um, so I think one of the things that is important to talk about is the fact that immigration policy and a lot of sort of, you know, the way that we respond to immigrant survivors and immigrants in general is often controlled by who who is president is because um, immigration is often controlled by the is an executive agency, which is DHS, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, so oftentimes we see really large swings in the way that immigration is dealt with from president to president um, and sort of executive agency to executive agency. And that is really unfortunate because it really is not, makes it really unclear for survivors and immigrants as to sort of the safety of being able to come to the U.S. um, and the ability to be able to come to the U.S. and seek immigration status. And it's also really difficult for us practitioners, too, because this sort of thing impacts 
enforcement priorities. So who is subject to enforcement? What areas can you actually enforce immigration policy? Um, and that really impacts sort of the advice we give survivors that like a few years ago, it was really unsafe for me to say to survivors to go to a courthouse, <laughs> you know, um, to participate in a proceeding like a PFA because enforcement priorities were that, you know, I could walk into a courthouse and take someone into custody, um, you know, for immigration issues um, because of the priorities were lax. Whereas now it's, it, I, my advice is much different. It's much safer to, to go to a courthouse to, you know, open yourself up to those public proceedings because, you know, there is more stricter rules around enforcement and where and when you can enforce immigration uh, policy and immigration provisions. Um, but again, it, also sets up this thing too where sort of, um, you know, we stop seeing, you know, grant funding and, you know, sort of resources being directed to those without immigration status because we see that as a bad thing. We see that as a negative thing instead of seeing that as, you know, someone who needs probably the most supportive services and the most intensive services um, and sort of, you know, legal support or, you know, uh, social service support. So they may not be eligible. So they're most likely oftentimes not eligible for public benefits and programs like SNAP, like TANF, um, temporary assistance for needy, needy families, cash assistance, you know. Um, and we often see that sometimes there are restrictions in like things like legal services and serving, uh, doing immigration cases or serving those without undocumented status because we've really set up, unfortunately, through the politicization of, you know, the immigration system and our current immigration system, uh, this sort of, you know, negative connotation about folks without status or folks who come here, um, you know, without immigration status um, or come here illegally and I'm using air quotes there because again that sort of even that language and that context of framing folks as illegal or alien is, you know, obviously uh, you know, setting up sort of that unfortunate dehumanization that's going on where, you know, again, folks don't want taxpayer benefits to go to these folks or, you know, they, you know, don't want grant funded programs to be available to these folks. Um, and that's really unfortunate because again, as like I said, these are the type of folks who are in most need for the type of services and supportive services that are traditionally offered um, from these types of agencies and these types of programs. Right. Totally. Um, yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's crazy. It makes me so mad when we start to just like list all of the ways that the politics can impact immigrants specifically because they're such a marginalized part of our society. And in many cases, they've just risked everything to come here. And the way that we talk about them is like we're scraping gum off the bottom of our shoes and they're actually people with real stories that deserve respect and our advocacy um so yeah that's really hard i guess to kind of follow up on that same vein i think a lot of the way that we talk about domestic violence um in this kind of like archetype of 
male perpetrators and female survivors. Um, how do you think that narrative that we have in our society impacts um, male survivors, non-binary survivors, and anybody who doesn't really fall into that archetype? Yeah, so so this is something that the domestic violence movement is totally, you know, um, really sort of adapting and progressing along with, um, because for so long that, that was the the strict gender binary was sort of the narrative um that was why services were created um why they're and was typically the way that we sort of heard these stories and sort of became aware of what domestic violence was um but now you know sort of broadening our understanding and and things like uh you know the NISFIS survey the cdc survey um, that is referenced by an NCADV, which is really a comprehensive survey on, you know, individuals across the United States and sort of their rates of intimate partner and sexual assault victimization. Um, you know, that really shows that the rates, you know, especially when we're talking about like male survivors, um, are extremely high. You know, we're talking about millions and millions of men who are talking about experiencing uh, severe psychological abuse, you know, and physical violence in their relationships. And I think for so long, because the conversation has been so steered to the strict gender binary, um, we've sort of, um, you know, really, I don't want to say neglected, but sort of, you know, uh, we're not, I don't think, hearing fully, you know, the voices of male survivors, non-binary and trans survivors within the conversation um, and sort of the really disproportionate rates at which they experience intimate partner violence and domestic violence. Um, so, you know, I think the movement as a whole is really you know, um, we see a lot of programs sort of changing their names to be a lot more inclusive, uh, you know, just intermittent partner violence in general, you know, uh, between families and current and former intimate partners, and even just changing like the general language within their their forms and their programmatic resources available to survivors um, to really recognize that this encompasses everybody, um, you know, across the gender spectrum, spectrum and across gender identities. And unfortunately, the the less attention that has been sort of brought to these folks' experiences, whether they be male survivors, trans or non-binary survivors, has sort of um, resulted in the lack of resources and services that are available to them or really geared towards them and respectful and inclusive of them and their experiences. But I think... Um, the movement is totally changing now and has been changing, you know, within the last, you know, even since the time that I, you know, became, came on board at PCADV. It's, it's a lot more of a much more broader topic. You know, again, we're really moving away from sort of, um, 
you know, like those traditional models, the traditional power and control wheels and the use of, you know, very gendered pronouns to sort of describe perpetrators and survivors and victims and these scenarios and really start of um, encompassing really sort of understanding like that domestic violence is pervasive regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of gender identity. Um, and it's incumbent on us to adapt our resources um, to really meet these survivors where they're at and, um, you know, make sure that we could, you know, provide them a safe and uh, compassionate space um, moving forward. So, you know, it's definitely like the politicization sort of, you know, uh, held us a little bit back, but I think um, folks are really sort of moving forward and recognizing how over-encompassing the, the problem is and, and how resources really need to adapt to survivors of all, all spectrums. Yeah, and I think it's really great that we are having those tough conversations. And I think, I mean, even in the last five, ten years, it's been such a positive step forward. And I'm really excited to see where we end up and, you know, the strides that we take as we move forward. Um, so my question for you is, what are some policy concerns that you see now and maybe that we can try to address or things that we should address, I guess, when it comes to the ways we respond to domestic violence? Um, so typically when I, t- I like talk about policy concerns, I like have like three buckets of like my three big things, um, that I often, uh, like get on my soapbox about <laughs> typically, um, the first one is often access to courts. I mean, again, I, I work in the field of legal services and I work in the field of the, the court world and the court system. And, um, especially since the pandemic, um, we've, there is such a benefit in terms of providing really expanded holistic access to the court system and um, for survivors to be able to access all the forms of relief and see the court and the court system has a positive um, sort of uh, influence in their lives and be able to instill that safety and security and autonomy that survivors want so desperately. And I just think um, th- there are some gaps in the in the Pennsylvania court system now for survivors. And, and I think that providing better and more uh, inclusive access to that system for survivors is something that we could totally do. Um, and it, I don't know if it is, you know, solvable by like a big piece of legislation. I don't think that. I think it's really solvable by like, you know, the advocacy that we do at PCDV directly within our local court systems and with our statewide, other statewide partnering agencies and professionals, um, you know, to sort of change policy at a statewide level and hope that that trickles down to, you know, individual counties. Um, but outside of the court system and sort of increasing accessibility to the court system for survivors, uh, the big areas that I often see are that, that I feel are the most important are, you know, um, housing. Housing is a, um, you know, 
to me, it's a human right. Um, and it's such a basic human right that we often see as being the biggest barrier as to why survivors stay in abusive relationships and do not access supportive services and resources is because of a lot of the restrictions that we have around housing. Um, and I, you know, again, I am not by any means the expert at PCADV on housing law and policy. We have an amazing housing team that really does uh, work directly with um, our COCs, our coordinated care uh, centers and um, local domestic violence programs to make sure survivors have the safe, fullest access to safe housing um, as they possibly can in Pennsylvania. But there's a lot of little things um, that I'm sure Catherine, you know, could attest to working on the helpline, you know, that survivors, uh, you know, need to be able to terminate a lease without paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Or they need to be able to get damages uh, to their property if, or get out of damages if they were done by the abuser. Um, they need to be able to maybe change the locks if they don't feel safe. Um, all these types of little things that we just don't have currently in our housing law and policy in Pennsylvania, or we do when they only apply to public housing. You know, these are protections that folks don't have in, you know, your private landlord-tenant relationships. Um, and finally, I think um, the other thing that I find myself so often coming back to as a policy concern is gun violence um, and gun control. Um, you know, we we have landmark legislation that PCDB helped write and helped pass with Act 79 in 2019, which was an overhaul to the Protection from Abuse Act around uh really around uh, third-party safekeeping of firearms and ammunition and other weapons and ammunition. Um, but there are so many other things I think we could be doing um, in regards to responding to regular common sense gun safety laws, but also uh, really responding to uh, domestic violence homicides that occur in the state of Pennsylvania and particularly uh, domestic violence uh, homicides that occur by firearms. Um, you know, so, you know, that goes beyond, you know, universal background checks, you know, assault weapons bans and, um, you know, those types of things to um, really our federal agencies properly applying federal firearms prohibitions against individuals who can't have firearms. Um, you know, what does your local ATF agency look like in terms of their ability to make sure that guns aren't falling into abusers' hands or wrong individuals' hands? Um, there's all different, there's a lot of different types of issues in regards to the gun violence uh, situation, but we know that it's a really, really prevalent issue that there's on, um, you know, assaults with firearms really, really increase lethality, um, you know, in terms of what we're talking about, lethality factors, the lethality assessment, um, and, you know, it's a really serious, you know, oftentimes we're talking about gun control, we're typically talking about this in the context of mass shootings and, um, you know, shootings in public, but it's oftentimes, um, you know, domestic violence that is, you know, a big part of the gun control and gun safety conversation that is, you know, oftentimes forgotten about because it seems like common sense that folks 
who are, you know, abusers should not have access to firearms. But unfortunately, it is still very common that they do. So that was, I would say, you know, we're going to limit it to at least three things. Those are typically the three things that I'm always, I feel like, constantly coming back to. We're talking about policy discussions and domestic violence. Yeah, for sure. And I think those areas are really interesting, too. And um, I do want to mention, because you brought up, like, the access to courts, um, part of my role working as an intern at PCADV was on the Pennsylvania Safe Law Helpline. Um, And we'll link in the show notes that resource. But I thought that that was, like, a really great program because I think as legal professionals, we often take it take for granted that like when we're talking about things like a protection order like as legal professionals we know what that is but as somebody who's never had any sort of legal education or even been inside a courtroom just having like the basic information of what is this where do I file it what do I need can really make such a big difference and I didn't realize that until I started working on the safe law helpline and that's totally informed the way that I talk about the law and policy in like all areas of my life and and Pennsylvania um does not have what is called civil Gideon um so uh Gideon is for Gideon versus Rainwright which is the case that established uh the six uh, amendment right to counsel in criminal cases and uh, when I was in clinic experience um, our clinical director at England School of Law was um, and, and still is uh, someone who studies and, and writes a lot about civil Gideon which is the right to counsel in civil matters um, and that is something that we see so frequently with survivors um, with folks in poverty with just regular regular old folks is the inability to access, you know, an attorney or access legal information, access legal advice. Um, you know, we see so, I mean, that was a really, um, real, such a common aspect of when I first started working in clinic with survivors and started working in the civil justice system is the sheer amount of litigants that are unrepresented and so much so that it was particularly a skill that was focused on in my clinic clinical experience on how to talk to and to deal with an unrepresented party because it's just it's kind of a minefield a little bit uh, ethically, you know, in not wanting to give them, you know, legal advice and sort of information, but also navigate the fact that they oftentimes, you know, had very little, ex- little uh, awareness of sort of, you know, what was going on and what stage of the process we were at and sort of how they participate in that process and how do they participate appropriately and fully. Um, and I think that is oftentimes um, not talked about is sort of really that family court is full of unrepresented litigants um, that, you know, our civil legal representation project and PA Safe Law trying to aim to get information and representation out to as many people as possible in Pennsylvania. And we have a lot of people that um, 
are represented by Victims of Crime Act funded attorneys that either work in conjunction with our projects, excuse me, our member programs or other projects. But we still do not have, you know, obviously everybody who needs an attorney does not have access to an attorney or even have access to legal advice or legal assistance. And, um, and that's just very apparent when you start working in the system, you start interacting with people who are working through the system is that that gap is very apparent. And we also know too, that like survivors are, ridiculously more successful and ridiculously more safe um, when they do have attorneys. Um, there's a lot of, there's studies out there that show that there's studies out there that really back up the proof that, you know, attorneys are life saving for survivors, particularly in protection order cases and those fam- in family violence cases. Um, so we're often making those arguments to folks about, the need to fund more attorneys and to need to have those conversations about like civil Gideon and, you know, appointing attorneys to represent folks um, in a lot of these cases uh, because there's significant gaps there, um, you know, and we, we try our best to fill them, but, you know, of course, wherever there are systems, there are going to be still, you know, unfortunately gaps and folks who fall through those gaps. Right. I think so over the summer I did my co-op at the DA's office and I had the privilege of handling preliminary hearings um, for the prosecution. And part of my job right before we go into the preliminary hearing is to talk to the defense counsel and then see if we can make a deal. And then oftentimes, um, especially in cases of battery, assault, that kind of stuff, they didn't have legal aid. And it was so frustrating to walk that fine line where I go up to them, I ask them if they have an attorney. I, I try to give them their options. You can ask for a continuance to get counsel. We can go in as is and you don't have an attorney, but I'll bear in mind that when you go in, you're held to the same legal standard as if you did have an attorney. And so many yeah. times they would look to me and say, what should I do? And I could not give them legal advice. And even suggesting, yeah. you know, I think you should go get an attorney. Um, is walking that fine line and it was just so frustrating because so many times I wanted to say get out of here do not go in without counsel because they can explain the process more than I'm actually allowed Mm -hmm. to do so um and so I can only imagine your frustration that was only for a summer for me right so I can only imagine your frustration going day in and day out having to walk that fine line yeah I mean it is and 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 I will one thing I'll say is I'm really going to shout out domestic violence advocates because if they're even walking that line even finer, I think, than myself um, has done in my role as an attorney um, because they there's a right under the Protection from Abuse Act for court accompaniment by a legal advocate, a, a domestic violence advocate for survivors. And they are there to really be that emotional and mental and psychological support to survivors because oftentimes, and this is typically in the context of protection from abuse cases, um, that process is terrifying. Um, you know, it's in a big courtroom. It's like a mini trial. You know, um, they're going to be scrutinized. They're going to be cross-examined. Um, but that is typically you know, in training domestic violence advocates and talking to them, that is often 
their their biggest frustration is sort of um, that they're able to provide that limited support because there is, you know, again, only so many attorneys to go around. We're talking about a civil case, which is a protection from abuse case. Um, and you're having, again, yeah, like exactly what you said, survivors who are saying, what should I do? What do I put down on the paper? And it's really like they can't, that's legal advice, you know. Um, you know, what act should I focus on when writing my petition? Like that's legal advice. You know, I could absolutely do that with a survivor, but um, oftentimes when, you know, I was counsel working at a, a program and, and similar folks in that role now is their time is very limited. You know, they have their own cases to deal with and, and it becomes really difficult for them to sort of assist on every single you know, PFA that comes into the agency that someone wants to complete, um, you know, not that they don't, that they wouldn't want to assist the survivor in that capacity, but, you know, um, this is domestic violence advocates are really, really deft in dealing with this and I think have utilized years and years of and foundations that the advocates before them have sort of used in terms of really walking that fine line, but you know, it is like really recognizing, like, as you said, sort of the, the difficult nature of it is, is that you open up people in crisis, the, the abuse and the incident abuse has happened very, very quickly after, um, you know, they're, they're meeting with them and, um, you know, they don't know who to turn to. And, and oftentimes we're, we're talking about, survivors who have not been allowed to make any major decisions in their relationship or their lives for God knows how long because of the abuse that they've experienced. And now you're putting them in front of a court and you're asking them to make some of the biggest choices in their lives and be very decisive about it. And that's really difficult. That's really, really difficult. And that is, you know, something that we often talk with, I think, interns about and something that I had to keep as a frame of focus when I started doing this work is, you know, that I could give you all the options as and all the resources and, you know, direct you as to where I think is the most useful as the attorney, uh, but I can't make those big decisions on what you should do and how you should proceed, you know. And, and that's just sometimes difficult going from having no autonomy to having absolute autonomy is a big wide swing and adjustment um, that I think sometimes folks um, that work with survivors, you know, sometimes underestimate. Um. For sure. Well, we're going to start wrapping up, but I wanted to ask you as like our last question, if there are survivors listening to the podcast, especially immigrant survivors what um, what would you want to say to them if they're listening? Oh, my goodness. Well, absolutely is um, please go to PCADV.org, um, go up to the top bar, and that is where to find your local domestic violence program. All you have to do is put in your zip code um, or your current location, and we will give you all of the local domestic violence programs, their contact information, and the mileage distance from where you currently are at now. Um, our programs, um, you know, receive federal, federal and state funding, so they 
you know, are, are there to provide services and resources and information to immigrant survivors of domestic violence. And they are oftentimes the most knowledgeable about the community resources, the community perspectives, and uh, sort of the community experiences for survivors. So I will often, so I will say, you know, please utilize your local domestic violence program. Um, that's what they're there for. They're there to advocate, to be there, and to provide those services that, you know, uh, could really, really be of assistance and support. Um, and they're there to, you know, work with survivors that, maybe limited English proficient. Um, so, you know, we often, our programs, you know, some programs have their resources already translated into other languages, um, but are, you know, really always there to provide sort of real-time translation through translation interpretation services, softwares, or their own bilingual speaking staff. I mean, when I worked at CBSC, we had several um, bilingual staff um, that were advocates. Um, because we had a very large uh, Dominican population in and still do in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Um, but really is what I really want to say is, is those are safe spaces. We're here to really give you resources. We're here to support. We're here to provide those services and connect you with the organizations uh, that can even help you further than that. Um, and, you know, really, I think is, is that, you know, the movement and our programs aim to be as welcome and inclusive as possible. And, you know, we're not there to judge. We're not there to shame or belittle your experience. We're there to validate it and to provide you steps to keep yourself safe, to keep your children safe, and to you know, establish that respect, dignity, and autonomy um, that you so really deserve, um, you know, as a survivor and as a individual here in the United States. Um, so, you know, while we can't guarantee that systems are going to be as inclusive and open and welcoming to survivors, we could do our absolute best at our programs and at PCADV to really be that space for survivors and to be there for them and uh, to hear them and to uh, value their experiences and, you know, how their experiences could really shape our responses to that population in general. Um, so that's really what I'll say to immigrant survivors. And, you know, again, we, we are here to, to really connect them with those resources that are really going to be um, even more in-depth on, you know, particularly, for instance, uh, the Pennsylvania Immigration Resource Center is often one that we partner with very heavily at PCADV um, that really goes to helping immigrant survivors in their communities and with immigration actions particularly. Um, but, you know, we're here. We hear you. And, you know, we're here to help. So please reach out. Please utilize our, our website. And, you know, again, for any civil legal guidance, information, uh, we have PA Safe Law, and we're absolutely able to provide uh, resources, support, and 
uh, time with our legal professionals um, in multiple languages, languages if needed. So, I love that. Thank you so much. Of course. We will link PCADV's website in our little bio for this episode. With that, I say thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking and meeting with you today. So much. I really appreciate it. The work that you're doing is great. Uh, well, thank you so much. And again, uh, I really appreciate you inviting me and allowing me to talk a little bit about PCABB and, um, you know, the legal, the legal team in particular and really all of the great work that our programs do uh, directly with immigrant survivors day in and day out. So, again, thank you. That wraps up our first episode of In the Shadows, where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows. Thanks again to Danny Beintroth for a great first conversation on what domestic violence is. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. If you live in Pennsylvania, you can reach out to the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence at PCADV.org. We will also have these resources listed in our episode summary. Stay tuned for next week as we have another guest here to talk about societal assumptions regarding domestic violence and how those assumptions create barriers to help-seeking, which are compounded in immigrant populations.